My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Leslie Wood. Far too many people, even people involved with social change work of one kind or another, are able to get away without thinking too much about the police. This is particularly true, of course, of those of us who are privileged enough not to experience the police as a potential or actual source of violence in an everyday sort of way, which is how they're often experienced by many folks who are black, indigenous, visibly poor, sex workers, or otherwise marginalized. And even among people who do give the police some critical attention, we don't often put a lot of effort into really understanding how they work as an institution. In activist contexts, we're often, as today's guest notes, bombarded simultaneously with assumptions of cop omniscience and cop incompetence, and we don't give nearly enough attention to asking things like what, and how, and why, as police do various and sundry things to manage, contain, derail, and sometimes violently repress our actions to create a better world. Leslie Wood is both a longtime anti-poverty and global justice activist and an associate professor of sociology at York University in Toronto. Her latest book, Crisis and Control, The Militarization of Protest Policing, from Between the Lines Books, looks at how the policing of protest in North America has shifted in the last few decades. In an era in which unmet human needs are growing while the willingness of state institutions to respond to popular demands by actually meeting needs is shrinking, and in an era of repressive police responses to popular protest in settings as varied as Toronto at the G20 summit in 2010 and Ferguson, Missouri much more recently, Research like Wood's may be just what movements need to get a better sense of what exactly we're up against. Wood talks with me about her research, about how police forces work and what kinds of things they do in the face of popular protest, about how that has shifted in recent years, and about ways that movements can respond. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name's Leslie Wood, and I live in Toronto, and... I've been involved in doing anti-poverty work and a range of different other movements, global justice movement, etc., etc., for quite a long time now. And I'm also an associate professor of sociology at York University and teaching on social movements and resistance. I'm going to be talking about a new book that I wrote called Crisis and Control, the Militarization of Policing that just came out. I'm interested in how social movements succeed in changing things. How do we change the world? What works? And so my past work was a lot of stuff on how ideas travel in movements, how direct action tactics spread from place to place, how waves of protest catch fire and just sort of go and why they sometimes collapse. And so that's where I came in. And of course, the relationships, the interactions with police are part of that. And as an organizer, I was also seeing the police change through time and their strategies and tactics change through time. A friend of mine, Sarah Vance, actually said to me, stop studying us, but start studying the forces against us. She really encouraged me to look at the policing side. That's one reason that I got into it. The other was that I have an ongoing argument with my partner about the police 
because I feel like sometimes we talk about the police as if they're either omnipotent, they understand what we're doing all the time, they try and intervene very strategically in order to break down coalitions, because everything is co-intelpro, or we present them as if they're just idiots. And so I thought, you know, I think it would be useful if we got between those two positions and tried to understand the logics by which they operated and the reasons that they're changing. I think it's about understanding the struggle that you're in, right? So when we go out into the street and we face mass arrest or infiltration, we should understand the way that they are reading us so we can read them better. It's about understanding the lay of the land. As people who are engaged in, like, street protests, the police are often what kind of mute or disable the power of protest. I think it's really important that we understand what they're up to. Not that we're going to convince them to be doing something different necessarily. The police have a particular role in society and a particular history. They emerged, the modern police, at the same time with capitalism, with the nation state, and their job is to maintain the status quo. And that is kind of the core of their being. Part of that maintaining the status quo is to keep order and maintain the power of those in power. We need to understand that and not be distracted by our own drama. (laughs) Sometimes I think we are engaged in street protest in a particular sort of drama where we're performing the good guys and they're the bad guys, and therefore we can't really be flexible and understand what's going on as well. And just to think more strategically about what we're doing and the results that might emerge when we do particular things. Most of the time in the policing of protest is a pretty low-key affair. The police don't really particularly like to do it. Their professional identity is about getting bad guys. And so policing is obviously more complicated and often leads for trouble, both in terms of their bosses and politicians and on the street. So it's a complicated thing for them to do. The change that's happened that people have documented is you had a wave of protest in the 1960s, and this is particularly, I'm talking about Canada and the U.S. In the U.S., it was much more dramatic, and the police went in and cracked heads, and it was on TV in the Chicago political conventions, et cetera, et cetera. And there were various federal commissions in the U.S. that said, okay, we've got to become better at protest policing. And this trickled into the Canadian context as well. So if there was a law broken, then the police had to respond. This was sort of the framework. And if the laws continued to be broken, then force was escalated in order to stop the laws being broken. People call this sometimes escalated force. In the 1970s and 80s, this shifted over to an emphasis on management. Sometimes in the States, it's called negotiated management, an emphasis on getting permits and not necessarily enforcing small rules being broken, but instead being able to kind of contain in a low-level, soft, uniform style the protests that happened in Canada. There was a real emphasis on liaisons, but this is also in the States. So police liaisons working with protesters to say, how are we going to help you to express your opinion? And so there was a framing of protest as something that was intended to give a voice to a population. So there was an understanding of it as civil liberties issues. This model was adopted by many social movements, not all social movements, and there was still a crackdown on groups that didn't play the game and groups that were seen as particularly outside of negotiation. There was still a a smaller proportion. In the mid-1990s, you started to see a militarization of policing in general, especially in the U.S., with the war on drugs. So you started to see personnel carriers and SWAT teams emerge in the U.S. in interventions into poor and people of color communities. 
this was particularly dramatic in the U.S., but there was some movement towards that in Canada. But you see a real shift happening in the late 1990s with the protests against APEC in Vancouver in 97 and the protests against the World Trade Organization in Seattle in 99. What happens in both of these is that the police start to use less lethal weapons against protesters, partly because they've started to use them more widely throughout their operations and partly because the trust with protesters is starting to break down. You have protesters who are starting to be very skeptical about the negotiated management model. They're saying, listen, we march in a circle and nothing ever happens. Protest was really dropping off of the public consciousness. There was, it was less likely to get into the media when people marched with a permit in a particular space, and the boundaries on it were becoming tighter and tighter. So you see this sort of break that happens in the late 1990s, something that one of the police experts in the Police Chief magazine says, this is our Pearl Harbor of policing, the Seattle protests. And what happens is they say we need to rethink how we do protest policing. There is a widely read CSIS. And uh, CSIS, of course, is the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, Canada's main spy agency. CSIS report that came out, anti-globalization, like a growing threat. They said these protesters are different, they won't negotiate, they're unpredictable, and we need to be smarter about it. And so you see a real shift in the move away from negotiation. There's still negotiation for a wide variety of groups, but for anybody who's seen as uncooperative, there's a shift into what some people are calling strategic incapacitation. So strategic incapacitation is an attempt to keep the lid and control and contain and incapacitate protesters who won't play the game. And what you see is people of color or youth or people who are ideologically motivated are often seen as those who don't play the game with the police and they get the more militarized tactics. That's sort of the shift. Strategic incapacitation involves four different elements. First is spatial control. You see a real rise in the use of barricades, barriers, peddling, protest pens, all attempts to keep people in particular spaces when they are protesting. The second is an increased use of less lethal weapons, so pepper spray, flashbang grenades, tear gas, rubber or plastic bullets, tasers, LRADs, the long-range acoustic devices. These sorts of less lethal weapons start to become part of protest policing along with riot control gear. The third is an emphasis on intelligence-led policing, so real use of an attempt to predict what protesters are going to do through uh, infiltration sometimes, use of intelligence. They're evaluating protests in terms of the threat and risk that it poses. This is a logic that's come from the UK, and risk and threat assessments start to frame protests quite differently. And the last one is preemptive mass arrest. So you see a real rapid increase in the number of people who are arrested even before protests happen. So this has become the new model. So there is this transformation. It's become much more militarized, but also much more preemptive, right? so intelligence-led policing. And it manifests differently in different places. In the U.S., it tends to look much more RoboCop style than in Canada. But in Canada, there's much more central emphasis on intelligence-led policing coming from the British model and the use of preemption. Wood spoke a bit about the methods that she used to do this research, including looking in archives of mainstream media, activist media, and documents from courts, public inquiries, corporate sources, and the police themselves. In this research, she focused particularly on tracing the changes as they occurred in Toronto, Montreal, New York City, and Washington, D.C. 
Then, I asked her to begin talking about some of her findings in more detail by addressing why movements might not want to respond to the threat of more militarized policing by simply trying to shore up or return to the negotiated management approach. There is a real tension there right, when you're organizing, because if you get a permit, especially, you know, the first time, and you work with the police, you can sometimes say to the people that you're working with, listen, the police, they understand what we're going to do. This is not a situation which is going to be threatening. You can bring your children. You can have a family-friendly sort of demonstration. That said, you really are just giving up some power to the police in that context. You're saying, okay, we're going to give you the power to control us in this protest moment, and you lose a certain amount of what protest is about in the first place. There's some interesting interviews of an Ottawa police officer who says, well, yeah, I, w I work with them, and that means I have much more information about what they're going to do. And I can say, listen, let's get your voice heard. We're going to go down this way. We're gonna, this is the best way to go. Well, this may also be the one that's least disruptive. Part of the power of protest is to disrupt. So by playing that game, you may be losing some of the power of the protest in the first place. And protest can become very routine. When street protest has power, it's when it, it makes manifest the threat of ordinary people to authorities. And so by playing the game of getting the permits, you're taking away some of that potential power, some of that potential threat, and you're making it manageable. By making it manageable, you're losing the point of doing it in the first place. It comes down to how do you see power operating and what do you see the role of protest? If you believe that large numbers alone is what will convince authorities to take you seriously, then sure, it makes sense to work with the police. But history seems to have shown that sometimes you can have massive demonstrations and absolutely no response, not even no media coverage, but no response from authorities. And a small protest that's surprising in some way can get a much, um, much more visible reaction, can create a crisis. That's what protest is to do, is to create some sort of a crisis so that it forces a response. But you can see the carrot and the stick here, right? In terms of the transition to the more confrontational mode of policing, the strategic incapacitation model, one of the things that I thought was interesting in how you wrote about it is along with changes in police practices, that was accompanied by a kind of change in framing and how they talked and thought about movements in terms of, I think, being intelligence-led, in terms of the emphasis on risk and threat assessment, that all of a sudden movements, which had been in their own category, became part of this general thing called a threat or a risk, along with terrorism and crime and all sorts of other things. Tell me a little bit about that transition. Mm -hmm. This is something that I think is particularly important, and you see it coming over from the UK, this idea that you can evaluate all sorts of different activities in terms of the risk and the threat that they pose. And if you look at the intelligence-led policing kind of model, they say it's a business model. This is about cost-cutting, which is interesting. They say this is how we use our resources strategically. And so you use intelligence in order to understand the potential risk or threat that something poses. And so this means that a flood, a terrorist attack, and a protest are sort of kind of merged into the same category, which takes away from any sort of thinking about the motivations, thinking about what is trying to be done. Protest starts to be seen as a threat. Then there's an additional shift that happens with Public Safety Canada in the early 2000s after 9-11, where potential targets are inventoried. 
Police forces are asked to inventory any critical infrastructure in their vicinity. So anything that is seen as important to the operation of the economic or political system is deemed critical infrastructure. If a protest is then targeting critical infrastructure, its evaluation becomes that much more intense. Because the target is important, the protest is seen as that much more important, that much more threatening. The risk increases. So you start to then not be looking at the capacity of the protesters to do a particular thing or their intention to do a particular thing. But because the target is important, anything that they're doing targeting that becomes much more important and significant threat. And it triggers a, a use of kind of a national security discourse. So additional resources are available for national security operations for any process that's targeting critical infrastructure. And this plays out particularly intensely with indigenous protests that targets railways or highways or something like this. So you get a national security infrastructure comes into operation and starts to evaluate activity in a much more intensive way. You have some great research being done by a grad student that I work with, Tia Daphnos, about policing of indigenous communities and the intensive threat assessment and risk assessment that goes on on an ongoing basis in their ordinary life. So now we're moving from looking at protest as threat to entire communities being evaluated in terms of their potential threat and risk. So there's this seepage, right, that has come from a blurring of the lines between policing, military, and intelligence gathering that has moved from the war on drugs into street protests and into the policing of indigenous communities, especially in the Canadian context, that I think is really important to pay attention to. So one of the links that you make in the book, and you've alluded to one part of that in talking about cost-cutting as being one of the motivations for changes in policing, is between the overall spectrum of changes that we call neoliberalism and the changes in policing that you identify. So lay out for listeners, what is neoliberalism, first of all, and what does that have to do with the way that policing has changed? Neoliberalism is saying that the state should really get out of the way of markets. Their job is to facilitate markets. And social spending is not the role of government. So what you're seeing is a real cut in spending on education and healthcare, and at the same time kind of an opening up of markets and business. A part of that is how do you make a climate that is secure for business? You need to make sure that you've got order. So police have ended up taking the role that used to be done by a lot of social services and having to manage that at the same time as income inequalities are really increasing. So you have income inequalities increasing as corporations get more power, make money, and any sort of government intervention into the economy is diminished, and police are given the job of trying to maintain order over that. So you've got a move from a government that does a wider range of things to a government that is in a role of security and policing and more powerful corporations. It's quite a deadly combination. Especially for those of us who don't come from communities that are targeted by everyday violence from police, it becomes very easy to talk about the nastiness of policing only in the context of protest and lose the connection to that everyday police violence. Connect some of your observations around shifts in protest policing to patterns of police behavior in everyday contexts in terms of people of color, indigenous people, sex workers, low-income people, and so on. I think it's too easy for white middle-class folks, like I guess myself now, to think about the police as a relatively benign body that act out on occasion, and we just need to make sure that they're not too violent, that civil liberties are respected, and that they don't get too corrupt, right? 
that it's just a matter of bad apples and this sort of thing. But the police have a particular role, right? And they keep the status quo in check, and that means in control, particularly in low-income communities, communities of color. And that has been consistent. So I think that a lot of the conversation about Ferguson has been interesting in that people are like, oh my gosh, the police are, are becoming militarized. Well, the police have been militarized. The police have been killing young black men for forever. But now we're seeing it on a public stage where we're surprising a lot of people. One of the things that was interesting when I started to look at the police in Toronto, Montreal, Washington, and New York is that all four police forces are violent, corrupt, and racist because of what the police are as a particular institution. They just do it in slightly different ways. Yeah, no, but I think that you're right. You don't want to separate it out as the police are only a problem at the G20 or the police are only a problem at APEC or whatever. We have to understand what the police are and what the police do. And maybe address specifically, since it has been the most high-profile instance in the mainstream media recently, what you've observed about Ferguson and how that relates to the research that you've done and how what we've seen about policing there, which those of us in Canada, again, it's very easy to fall into saying, well, you know, that's an American thing. How does that relate to here, this part of Turtle Island? What you see in Ferguson, there is elements of it that are particular to the U.S., and the Canadian Police Association, the head of that, was like, this is just a U.S. problem. I think that's really disingenuous. When you actually start to look at especially non-lethal weapons and intelligence-led policing, those elements, Canada is actually an innovator. The first use of pepper spray against protesters in Canada and the U.S. took place in Canada, in Ottawa, in 1993. The first use of tasers against protesters was used in Canada, in Quebec City, in 2001. So Canadian police have been actually on the front lines of the militarization of protest policing. Maybe not with the APCs and some of the gear, but in terms of less lethal weapons and in terms of intelligence-led policing and preemptive arrests, Canada has definitely been at the front lines. And so I think this is something that goes far beyond the U.S. And one of the things that I think needs to be talked about that hasn't been talked about so much in Ferguson is the role of the security and defense corporations in facilitating this. One of the things that's happened over the last 25 years is an increasing globalization of policing networks. So police are speaking to each other, they're working together across borders, they're sharing publications, and they're sharing strategy much, much more. And so you have conferences of organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police that have massive trade fairs with the most recent one, I think 800 or 900 different products on sale, everything from the latest shields to the latest radios to the latest in less lethal technology. And those spaces are seen as professional, legitimate, and cutting edge. So police forces in Canada and the U.S. and internationally are adopting the latest products in these spaces, which aren't just trade fairs. They're trade fairs and workshops. In the U.S., you can be a gold-level corporate sponsor of the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference, which means you get to host an educational workshop. You can host receptions. You get to meet the police chiefs. And we're talking, you know, 15,000 police chiefs showing up for one of these recent events. So this is part of the story as well of what's going on in Ferguson. There's people making an awful lot of money out of the, <laughs> the militarization of policing. So looking at the changes that you've talked about, what do you think that movements can learn from this in concrete terms? What is the benefit for our side in understanding some of these dynamics? Well, I think the benefit is really at the local level, because I think this is where we can have pushback. 
the police, even though I'm now presenting them as if they've become this unstoppable robocop militarized thing, are actually always in crisis. So the crisis in control of the title is partly around the economic and political crisis that's going on, but it's also around the fact that the police are constantly trying to keep their own legitimacy, their own resources, their own accountability, their own relationships that are often threatened because really they're doing a job that is impossible. They're trying to keep order in a really unstable system. And so I think what you get is at the local level, you get people calling the police to account, saying, no, you don't get to have more tasers. No, saying we're not going to allow this long-range acoustic device to be used. We're not going to stay in those barricades. We're going to pay attention to what you're doing. And you do get some pushbacks. In all the cities that I looked at, the role of ordinary people and sometimes oversight bodies, oversight bodies tend to get corrupted quite quickly, but new oversight bodies tend to push back, at least initially, to try and keep the pressure on the police and to make sure that their legitimacy, their resources, and their autonomy are challenged. And so I think that's what we need to pay attention to. The relationships between the different actors at the local level is where the power is. There is real variation. So in Montreal and Toronto, you can see the role of the police unions are particularly powerful. And there's a real separation between the city mayors and the police chiefs. Whereas in the U.S., you have a really tight relationship between police commissioners and mayors, where often the police commissioner is appointed by the mayor. And so Bloomberg could say that I have my own private army. We have a very different situation in Toronto and Montreal, right? So keeping pressure on those relationships, I think, is also really important as activists. And not separating out what goes on, as you were talking about earlier, between the street protest and ordinary policing. So what we saw with World Pride in Toronto this year was an expansion of TAVIS, which is anti-violence initiatives in the downtown east of Toronto, which is one of the poorest areas of downtown Toronto. And making the connection between that and the uh, protest policing at the G20 and saying, look, both of these are about intervening into the lives of people. And both of these are about police power, and we need to make sure that we keep our eyes and our attention on policing practices. Community policing isn't necessarily the solution either, right? Because what community policing means is more police in the neighborhood, more police in every aspect of our lives. Instead, what we need to be doing is talking about how do we look after each other? How do we create a society that will work for the people who live in it? So you have situations in Mexico where the police have been particularly violent and corrupt, where communities have kicked out the police and said, no, we're going to actually maintain security on our own. And, you know, we don't need to necessarily move into the area of vigilanteism, but we can be responsible about taking care of ourselves instead of giving heavily armored people additional power over our lives. Because they're an armed group that is given legitimacy by the state. There's such a strong tendency to corrupt in that situation. There's an almost inevitable tendency to corrupt, right? So we need to keep the pressure on. You have been listening to my interview with anti-poverty organizer and York University sociologist Leslie Wood about her recent study of the policing of protest in North America, published in her new book Crisis and Control, The Militarization of Protest Policing, available from Between the Lines Books. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.